Transit Voices with Ben Whitaker. Welcome to the Transit Voices podcast. Today we're speaking with Simon Laker from Consult Hyperion, bringing it to national experience in both payments and public transit. Coming to tell us a few of his ideas on blockchain and cryptocurrency in transit, as well as their work bringing CEMV to TFL and some of the big agencies and the savings that they could achieve there, and then moving on to Simon's research recently published about the whole life cycle savings that can be achieved by moving to shared platforms for software and fare collection rather than bespoke design build. Now, let's get talking. Welcome, Simon Laker. Thanks for coming on to speak to us on Transit Voices. For those who've not met Simon, he's a longtime experienced consultant on the transit industry and amongst other things has worked especially on payments, payment security, and also on new fair payments technology on the RFP side and the implementation side for some very large agencies with Consult Hyperion. Simon, uh, do you want to give us a bit more background on Consult Hyperion, some of the sort of high-profile projects people have heard of and the kind of things you get involved with? So Consult Hyperion, for for those who don't know us, we've been around for, for quite some time, about 35 years or so, our premise has predominantly been in sort of securing electronic transactions. And in the mid-80s when we were formed, that involved quite a lot of securing interbank transfers and settlements in the days when the stock market went digital here in the UK and, and, and globally. And as time went on, that grew into face-to-face payments, predominantly around sort of EMV cards and contactless EMV. And as time moved on, we've got into sort of newer technologies, mobile payments, more interesting transactions around CBDCs, quite a hot topic right now. So we sort of over the years, we've kind of sort of followed the trends and kept ourselves sort of one step ahead, sort of helping our clients sort of introduce new and exciting technologies to the market, which has uh, helped deliver some sort of exciting new customer opportunities, specifically in the transit space. That's where I've spent a lot of my time working as we sort of use these technologies day to day. CBDC, can you just explain that to people who might not be as steeped in the payments world? CBDC is central bank digital currencies. So a digital version of the paper currency that you and I use day to day is the, the brief one line explanation. Right. So that, that's still in the, uh, the government and policy space rather than in the being implemented space for all but probably about one or two countries in the world. Yeah. Right? So, so a couple of countries that have up and running CBDC pilots uh, right now, uh, most notably in China, but quite a lot of central banks around the world, notably in sort of places like Israel and Egypt and the US and the UK and uh, the European Union are are, are definitely looking at CBDCs, figuring out whether they have a play in the future of our payments landscape, whether it's something government should be involved with or whether it's something to, to, to step back from. And this is a technology looking for a solution rather than, you know, a solution needing a technology to deliver it. Yeah. I mean, for me, one of the things I'm always very suspicious of in the transit space is where there are hype technologies that start to consume a lot of management bandwidth and in some cases, some of the research time. And at some of the trade shows, we've had people come up to us and say how excited they are to bring blockchain and digital currencies into public transit payments. I'm a bit of a, a cynic on 
technologies being adopted too early. Yes, sometimes a couple of pilots need to happen, but I feel very much, especially with digital currency, that public transit, which is a lot about things that work for the vast majority of, of riders, I get the feeling that public transit should probably not be an early adopter of digital currency, is, is my view. I mean, you're, I you're really <laughs> close to it at Consult Hyperion. Could, could you summarise where you would place digital currency and blockchain versus public transit ticketing and whether that, like me, you'd agree it should be wait and see and we, we shouldn't really be investing money at this point. Perhaps we should get jackets because I'm, I'm in the same club as you, I think. Um, but, um, <laughs> and, you know, and likewise, you know, clients come up to me and ask me, you know, oh, I saw a report about, you know, XYZ technology, should we be looking into it? So we, we spend a bit of time sort of looking at future technologies and kind of road mapping where they fit in terms of when I should pay attention to them. And I think there are other payment, new payment initiatives coming along that we can get excited about way before we get excited about blockchain and CBDCs in a transit space. Um, I think there are, there are other areas that we, we should pay attention to first before we start worrying about CBDCs. So in a timescale window, I've kind of put CBDCs and, and digital currencies in a sort of five to 10 year window from now, um, rather than something that we need to worry about in the, in the short term. Couldn't agree more. Especially some of the uh, today's blockchain tech, a lot of it is, I'd say, almost the antithesis of what public transit is trying to achieve. And public transit is sustainable, both in terms of good quality of life in high density cities, in terms of people not being in traffic jams, not producing so much carbon, not using so much energy. It's all those good sort of things. And then blockchain seems to, especially proof-of-work blockchain, which is like Bitcoin and Bitcoin-derived blockchains, consume a obscene quantity of energy, not only in the generation of the initial tokens, but in the recording of new transactions, mm-hmm. such that all of the carbon benefit of using public transport could be immediately <laughs> offset if there yes. was any blockchain involvement in either stamping and processing the ticket use or in the retail of it as a currency. My view was it should absolutely be under a, this should be considered banned until something fundamentally changes in it, in terms of using it anywhere near public transit or sustainable technology. We might as well just jump in our cars. Exactly, exactly. It just it seems to be the opposite of what we're trying to achieve yep. in its current form. Right, exactly. Okay, well, that, after that segue into, uh, into blockchain, <laughs> one of the things that uh, Consult Hyperion, by being so ahead of the game in payments tech, as payments technology in a particular form of it has started to get very exciting for transit. So what feels like quite a lot of years ago now, contactless EMV, the ability to tap a bank card and have it do something a bit like an Oyster card, but without it needing to be a closed loop system with one transit authority, but in fact be an open loop system issued by banks and financial institutions and something that you could tap like an Oyster card anywhere in the world. Yep. When that came in, Consult Hyperion really was in the right place at the right time to help some of the big agencies take those first exciting steps and, and then yep. what we've seen go around the world since. Can you tell us about some of the projects Consult Hyperion has been 
involved in and the kind of agencies who have been early to the world of contactless EMV, but in this case, a technology that really does feel ready and fit for purpose for transit. In sort of 2007, 2008, Transport for London came to us and said, look, we see this, we see the banks are starting to issue these cards and it's using the same technology as our Oyster card, more or less. How can we leverage that to solve a number of problems that we've got? And those problems were, it's a Victorian built transportation system. Tunnels and ticket halls are very, very small. And if you have a number of people queuing at ticket machines, loading money onto Oyster or getting a ticket and queuing to do that because it takes time, then they're getting in the way of people that have got their Oyster card loaded and just want to get through that, you know, that ticket hall and tap on and, and get on and ride. 2008, uh, with, with TFL sort of figuring out how to cut out all of that sales stuff and just arrive at the station and tap something you already have in your pocket issued by a bank directly on the, on the fare gate. And in the UK at the time, the way contactless cards worked were mostly offline. They had about £30 worth of value on them before you were forced to do uh, an online chip and pin transaction. So it's pretty limited. And we were thinking, well, how the hell are we going to manage that float on the card? And what happens when it needs to go online? How can we make this work? And, you know, we went down so many rabbit hole dead ends <laughs> before we finally sort of came up with, well, why don't we ignore all of that and just use the card as an identifier and a link to a payment account? And so what we could use is we could go, you, where you tap the card, we do a transaction for nothing because at this point we're not selling anything because we don't know what we're selling because a tube journey could be one stop or 15 stops. And so that could be charged differently. So at the point of entry, we don't know what we're charging. But if we can authenticate the card using EMV crypto techniques, offline data authentication, so we know we're dealing with a genuine card issued by a genuine bank, then that gives us TFL comfort that we're accepting a, a good credential and it's not been cloned or anything. And then we'll open the gates, our risk being one journey, first journey risk. And then at the back end, we'll get an authorization as quickly as possible and then we'll be good for the day. That was the basic premise that we started with. And in 2012, we got to a point where we could do the first tap on a bus in London. And buses are slightly different and slightly easier because they're fixed fare. You tap on, it's a single fare. So it's a little bit easier to manage. We had to spend a lot of time figuring out um, risk and what the issues would be and come up with answers for those before we went into some of those meetings. So that first ride risk, how do we figure that out for the agency? Ongoing debt and, and you know, no transaction value and a day's worth of rides. Well, what would that mean for the card issuer? So how do we balance all of these to make sure that everyone's risk is, there is some risk for, for each of those parties, but how can we manage that? And how can we use the tools that EMV and the payment system has to kind of mitigate those risks? And I think what we've seen through TFL operating now for, for nearly 10 years is those risks and those um, losses are really so minimal that it's proved the success of you know, what we what we set out to do at the start. And then, uh, as you say, the offshoot of that has been the success of contactless. 
Yeah, some of the people using contactless EMV from uh, other devices and wearables have commented that it is a bit of a pain to get through the gates when they're wearing their watch on their left hand and all the readers are on the right side. Masabi did a gate design project with New York's MTA for the subway there and looking at what was the most ergonomic setup to reuse the existing steelwork that, and civils that have been put into all of those areas uh, to maintain good throughput for people who were using the legacy cards, as well as enable contactless EMV, mobile barcodes, paper barcodes, and everything else. Sometimes there are other things we need to get nailed first before yeah. spending time and money on some of these smaller niches for the already well-supported customers. And so sometimes when we've got customers who've got bank cards, mobile phones, whether it's by barcode or by contactless EMV or virtualized transit cards or anything else, when we're talking about groups who are underserved by new tech or underserved by fare capping or anything else, those are the groups we kind of need to help the most. Yep. And then... Any additional investment of money to take someone who is already very well served with four different options before they even get out of the house of how they might do it. The idea that we then invest even more money to allow them to, instead of using a phone or a handheld card that they possess, mm. to make it easier for them to use their watch on their opposite hand. That's kind of the, the, the minority spend much after we kind of deal with the subsistence riders who are only buying one ticket at a time. So if you have enough money to buy a London annual season ticket, you're paying far less per journey than low-income subsistence riders who can only afford either to, to pay or top up for single journeys or a day's worth of journey at the time. One of the things I really love about account-based ticketing coming out is where it allows more and more passenger groups who don't have the money to pay up front for a whole month's worth of travel yeah. to gradually earn a period pass because even though they're only doing small top-ups or buying single tickets at a time, the back office can see that it's the same card or the same phone or the same identity going through and then say, right, well, you are only buying singles or day passes, but three days into the week, I can now credit you with the week's pass yep. that you would have bought back then if you knew you were going to do this much and stumped up the cash in the first place. Originally, they, I mean, so we had them. Um... We had capping on Oyster, day capping on Oyster, which was really quite complicated because it was just managed between the reader and the card, card-based technology for Oyster. So very, very complicated. But introducing EMV and account-based ticketing in, in London allowed them to expand that day cap into a week cap. And you know it could continue into a month cap quite easily. You know, that's the, the beauty and the flexibility of you know, account-based ticketing. It was always there in London. But account-based ticketing has allowed it to expand and allow more people to use it. And so the journey with TFL sort of really sort of continued. So in 2014, they, they launched system-wide. So on adding what they built onto buses in 2012 uh, into, you know, using open payments on, on the tube, on riverboats, on the cable car was there at that point. Uh, you know, so on, on, on every Transport for London mode, you could now do intermodal journeys using open payments. And that grew from just a few percent using it to what we see today, which is you know, slightly pandemic helped, I'm sure. But 70% of all journeys now at TFL are, are using sort of open payments pay as you go. It's shown its success from those early days when we were sort of sat scratching our heads, figuring out how to how to do it in the first place. You know, I think it, it's certainly 
proved its worth, um, proved the investment uh, was worthwhile. Um, and ultimately, for TfL has saved them quite a lot of money. We've seen mm. reports from them that have said that, you know, their, their cost of fare collection, which they spend some time in calculating, has dropped from around high teens percentage with Oyster down to single percentage points uh, now with open payments and Oyster running in parallel. So the opportunity is there still to reduce that figure further by removing the still the card-based Oyster system from London and going all ABT, which is uh, something I'm looking forward to seeing over the next 10 years. Yeah, I certainly agree. But uh, as well as the TFL work, you, I mean, you've had a stint over in the USA and you've been getting involved in some of the, the big US procurements on this space as well. What are some of the projects you've been involved with and have there been major differences that you've seen in the North American market versus the TFL rollout? Um, certainly. Um, so we, we opened an office in the US in around 2013, I think, and I went out there in 2014 to support and um, add sort of technical capability there and to sort of support building the team out, out in the US. Quite a lot of actual sort of hands-on project work I got involved in while out there was naturally sort of transit-focused, working with the likes of the MTA in New York, which was convenient because that's where I was living, as they were sort of started out what became the Omni project. And sort of one general observation I have about sort of, you know, some of the big US projects that we've worked on is that they weren't starting from scratch. They now had a reference project that they could look to in London to go, okay, well, we can see see exactly how they've done it. We want a piece of that. We've got these slightly different challenges. So we need to kind of modify what London have got to sort of look at those challenges and then sort of build our own system. We got involved in helping out the MTA, MBTA in Boston. We did quite a lot of work in, in Philadelphia at SEPTA and, uh, and down in DC as well, amongst sort of other agencies across the country and up into Canada and down into South America, um, supporting sort of, you know, how to sort of move into open loop uh, account-based ticketing systems. It's interesting as these roll out, because TFL London, they were the brave ones. They got in first and together with yourselves, had all of those early arguments and discussions to get the banks to fall yep. into line and get the rules changed to make it practically work, as well as having to create from scratch the software solution to make it work and to get the operations to work. That's fantastic. Right. And then Scepter in the USA and Salt Lake City, very early adopters in the USA. Of course, right. you've got to build that bespoke, but there's a lot more pieces that have to be built and integrated to make open loops sit there some of the American systems, they, they've got all sorts of extra channels now that have to be handled. So as well as bringing in contactless CMV, which with open loop means it has to be connected into the banks in quite a more uh, advanced manner and then certified and the care and feeding of that interface, they've still got to have sales channels that are going to work with the unbanked and cash only riders and all their concessions have to be handled. And now we've got this rise of mobile apps and other channels. Right. And it means where previously fair collection was a cardboard and a smart card and they could run in a closed system. We're now seeing things that have to be more open, not just open loop payments that's connecting out to banks, but things that are connecting to other websites and other providers and top up networks and retail networks and mobility, other mobility players. And it's getting more complex. So. As you know, Masabi has been championing the idea of instead of every agency going through the building it themselves from the ground upside, that they would 
buy into um, pay to make use of a shared platform. Recently, Consult Hyperion published a white paper on the total cost of ownership for fair collection delivery. Do you want to tell us a few more things about that? We always try and look at what's historically gone in the past. We spend quite a bit of time looking at public information about procurements of contactless and, and procurements of fair collection systems and trying to see, quite frankly, we're very nosy. So who's buying what, you know, who, who's supplying what into the market and that kind of thing, but also looking at how much they're paying for it. I've always believed that in the same way that the richer get a better deal of public transport than the poor, as we've just said, with, uh, you know, with equity, do Super cities actually end up paying less for fair collection than the small guys based on economies of scale. That's always been my kind of hypothesis. So we kind of look at the market in general. And what we started to see was, through our sort of natural inquisitiveness, was that there seemed to be a trend where those cities that were buying platform technologies, uh, shared services, seemed to be faring better in the long term than those cities that were either adding something bespoke or running a big RFP, multi-year RFP, and as you say, sort of then delivery, design, build, maintain, those type of systems. This was kind of where our, our sort of going in point. What we decided to do was to sort of have a look at, you know, a number of cities, different sizes, and see where they fell out. And what we found was quite startling. The data that we, we didn't speak to an, an, an agency about this, we just took what was in the public sphere and taking that information and going, well, it seems that actually you can save quite a substantial amount of money if you, if you use a platform. Really at the heart of fair collection now with account-based technologies, that's what's happening at the core where taps are coming in at the front, they're being processed, and a payment's being made at the back. And then there's some disbursements and stuff. But that's just kind of normal business as usual. But the, the core of you know, accepting taps, processing taps, settling at the end of the day is, is the, the heart of an ABT system. And it's the same whether you deploy it in city A to city B to city C. It, it doesn't change. Yes, there's some nice frilly stuff around the outside. And one city might want to talk to its customers and give their customers this fantastic customer experience. And and another city might go, well, we're just happy with the off the shelf with our badge on it. And that's fine. But they're the kind of decisions you can make around the outside. But the core is common from one city to another. That's what this study has kind of enlightened us to, is that by accepting that premise that there's not a lot of difference in the core. You can make some big savings. So this idea that people avoid in the RFP process, the big sort of design and bespoking bit normally would mean they can deploy more quickly without having to do all the debug and picking up those customer service issues or double payment issues or some of the other things that crept in when people were doing their sort of bespoke build of of open loop payments each time and rely on the fact that whoever did it first got all that debugging done and then you just sort of ride on their coattails and just say I'll have the same one please you sort of get there quicker and cheaper I mean what percentage of them do you think have had to pay change orders either during the initial deployment or or shortly after change orders in the life of the project 100% where we've seen success in mitigating 
those change orders has been in projects where we've we've worked pretty hard with vendors in advance on you know, sort of making sure that we've nailed down the requirements, if you like. New technology does come along and agencies want to take advantage of that, but it's the only way they can is to is, is to change the, the original agreement to, to add something in and inevitably that's absolutely a change order. It's tricky because the RFP approach, especially with design build, favours slightly underbidding to win the initial bid when you're in a competitive tender process and other people are showing their prices for the initially estimated work. But then when you're doing change orders, there's no competitor to the core project. That's it. You've got to, you've got to stick with it. I think the shared platform approach that we've been really pushing at Masabi with JustRide almost has a, a confusingly different approach, which is we really try to discourage change orders. And we'd rather people start to the roadmap of new features and the capabilities the platform has, because the more they use that, the more they maximize the value of going for the shared platform instead of bespoke, because they are different. Where you don't get absolutely everything your way, you don't get to sign off every single change and you don't have to have an internal design committee that's trying to get those calls correct on the spec. You're relying on the kind of intelligence of the market in general, that what's coming out from the platform is generally good for the market and somebody else is taking the design risk on it. But of our customers, I think only 10% have signed change orders. So compared to your 100% end up with a change order in the end on a bespoke design build, we've got 10% on ours and a business model which doesn't seek to generate our margins to sustain our business overall from those change orders. New technology comes along and agencies want to take advantage of it. With the shared platform, each year that shared platform is trying to be competitive to win new projects in that year and therefore have a spread of technologies that are right for that year. And then five years later, that shared platform is still trying to win new work five years later. So it's deploying the technology to try and be competitive in five years. And that's great for anyone new, but if the shared platform is the same code base used by everyone, the customers who purchased five years previously, they can then be offered those new features without having to do a risky, significant rebuild or uh, change order. We, that's our hypothesis. And we've had quite a few agencies who've started small on shared platforms. It's kind of a, a bit of a challenging change to not get everything done bespoke. Yeah. So they've they bought like the mobile ticketing bit, deployed that. And then a few years later, they go, well, I can't fancy the account-based ticketing bit. Or I, I quite fancy the road to contactless EMV and they don't have to take the risk on thinking what I buy this year might go obsolete. For agencies to be able to access this new technology, they don't need to be as brave as TFL or invest as heavily as some of the agencies in the US that were the first to deploy Conti. They can pick it up as a, a service fee rather than have to take the design risk on designing it in an RFP and then paying the change orders and going through the debug. As new technologies come out, they can choose to turn on any of those that are popular in the following years, essentially removing the idea that their platform will become stale or out of date and, and maybe stopping them going obsolete. How much time do you have to exhaust convincing agencies of this approach? And I say that because in our experience, and you know, we, we love agencies a lot and they, they do a great job, but their primary job is to move people around a city or an urban area or whatever. And fair collection to a lot of agencies is something run out of the 
finance department or maybe the IT department. There's not like TfL that has a dedicated team that manages Oyster or the, the TfL system. And so there's a common theme. We can't go common because we have this special little nuance over here or this tricky bit here that couldn't possibly be replicated from what another city's done. We need to build something of our own that meets the needs of our agency. Do you have those kind of conversations? This is back to Pareto analysis, really. The kind of 80-20 rule that you can have 80% of the functionality you really want in 20% of the time and 20% of the cost. And then as you get a bit more specific, the amount of time and risk and effort and cost goes up for increasingly small bits of functionality. So sometimes you'll, you'll have an RFP where 90-odd percent of that surface can be delivered by a default platform. And you say, right, 90-odd percent of what you want, you could have for zero up front. And then that final little special doohickey you want for your local area, if that's really important for you, that will cost you a million dollars. And it'll take 12 months to build and deploy. And then we'll have to charge for maintaining that as a yep. special thing. And then you've got to go back and decide how important is that special doohickey? How many users is that going to affect? And are there alternative ways to deliver that service to those players? So sometimes it's a case of us saying, well, I see what you're actually needing to achieve. And we did that in another agency this way by using something that's standard and you know, other agencies can make use of. Sometimes we have to say, here's the APIs. So in fact, that side thing can be integrated into your website through this API by a local integrator who can do that bit of customization and it won't be done as part of the core platform. So that's the kind of hybrid model which we're seeing actually going into some of the tier one city bits. So a tier one city has so many of these extra bits of customization or integration into local reporting or, or local settlement yeah. that it's being done specific to national rules or uh, regulations or something like that, that we say, well, you can have all the speed and risk and continuous addition benefits of the core system being shared but then get a, a systems integrator to use the SDKs and APIs on the outside to do those customizations. Coming back to the smaller agencies, which don't really have a dedicated fair collection team, mm. it might be something that's really run out of finance or out of the IT team, is trying to realize that if you could get 90-odd percent of what you needed without having to manage a multi-tiered multi-channel software development process, is that enough? And does that win you plenty of time back to actually move people around and dedicate your activities around BRT and making the yeah. best use of new mobility options in your area to deliver to your customers in your setting? It really comes down to, you know, you, you wouldn't build your own PSP or payments gateway anymore, and you, you wouldn't build your own car anymore you would use one that everyone else had got working, unless that was your real expert area. And we often find that with some agencies, getting them to try using a shared platform for mobile and figuring out that nobody's ears fall off, it isn't that bad not being able to sign off every single change, and that's okay. Then they get a few more bits and a few more bits, and they go, yeah, this is actually quite nice because a whole bunch of new things I wouldn't have thought of are now options without me having to future-proof my solution at RFP stage. The work that we're doing with, with the 
the larger cities certainly and and more and more cases sort of certainly medium and uh, small cities that we're working with is in some cases following that hybrid approach where they're taking sort of platform and bespoke and other off-the-shelf elements and bringing those together um, to create systems almost taking a I can't even for want of a better term, a best-of-breed approach. We're working in that that area today, sort of supporting those integrations, supporting sort of API integrations, ensuring that, you know, one vendor's reader works in another vendor's fair gates or, you know, um, one vendor's parking solution connects to uh, another vendor's back end. All of those sort of integrations will need to be carefully managed, but it's absolutely the way that we see the industry moving uh, as we go into the next sort of five, ten years. Well, certainly reading your report and seeing that savings are between 40 odd and 70 odd percent on the uh, the cost of ownership over the length of the project certainly seem like savings that should be really evaluated versus going totally bespoke. Yes, they're, they're not savings I can promise. They're just observations that we've seen with some of the data that we've had available to us. But absolutely, agencies should, should definitely look at all of their options or all of the options on the marketplace in order to, to realise costs that are certainly there. Hopefully, if that's what they're going towards, it'll be something that you can help them figure out in the RFP, how to set themselves up to get shared yep. platform options. Because if they over-specify in the RFP, they won't be able to have any shared platforms being offered to them. It'll only right. be bespoke. You're listening to Transit Voices, Boondoggle versus the Underdog. Well, one of the things we like to ask our guests while they're here, though, is uh, about their underdogs and boondoggles. So mm-hmm. which technologies you think still have been overhyped and wasting a lot of time and money being piloted too many times? And we should probably just leave for a bit until it's a bit more ready. Yeah. Uh, and also, which are the, which are the underdogs that, you think really could do something very special and nobody's giving them enough time of day yet and you'd, you'd want to shout out and get people to spend a bit more time on. This was really hard when you asked me to sort of think through this because there's there's so many, but where shall I start? Boondoggles, just because, you know, I, I think, uh, and, and my boondoggle is, is quite contentious and, and I was toying between BLE and this whole be in, be out concept and mass and not sure which one to fall down uh, and there'll be people out there going what the hell is he on about because you know there's people investing a huge amount of time in in, in both of these technologies um uh, can you can you specify which version of mass you're you're putting in room 101 <laughs> therein lies the problem really i think no matter who you ask they'll all come up with a different interpretation of what mass means to them the mass that an entity can string together a number of independent journeys together to create a single ride. I really struggle with how that the business case for that hangs together, where any of those entities can make money. I, I'm fully on board with promoting and, and using public transport door-to-door as much as possible, you know, and whether that's micromobility for first mile, last mile, or whether it's car sharing clubs, or however that's all sorted when... of the journeys that I take from A to B start at Google or Apple Maps because they're the ones that, you know, mapping is is step one. So I think let's sweep aside trying to sort of develop this app or whatever it is that's going to get us to what we think is a mass solution and focus on vendors or transit agencies or, you know, micromobility providers 
supplying or opening up APIs that allow people that can really do journey building, like Google and Apple, to hook in and go, here's a way that you can go from A to B. Here's how much it costs. We're collecting the money. You can pay through Apple Wallet or Google Wallet or whatever. And here's three other people that are also doing that same journey. So there's another option to do that. Or here's a green option, you know, bringing that together in in something that makes a bit more sense than an app. I couldn't agree more. And practical mass is how Masabi describes this. For that niche that are doing an unfamiliar journey and need to be shown it in a journey planner, if some of those steps need to be booked or paid for as a one-off ticket and aren't just tap and ride, then being able to offer within your Uber app that you can use your pre-registered card to buy or within Google Maps that your GPay will just pay for those stages, that's really good for that niche. But we do find that's a niche, that most regular commuters don't need a journey planner. They know where they're going and they just want to tap and go and they want zero seconds in a user interface. And if they're tapping and riding with a card, that's fine. If they're doing it with an Apple Watch, that's great. They only need a journey planner when it's unfamiliar or a different place. And that niche will be serviced in different ways. And yeah, I agree with you. Opening up the APIs is a stage here, but the idea that London should have a London mass app to force everyone into, and then Copenhagen have one, and then Manchester have one. The fact that Italy is paying an enormous quantity of money to allow every single town to build its own mass app that then has to be advertised in competition against Google Maps seems insane to me. Yeah, baffling. Uh, Let's use what already exists and, and, and make the most of that rather than trying to reinvent the wheel. Yeah, I, I certainly agree. And, and what about underdog? What's what's the undersung technology that we should give a bit more time to in this space? Well, you won't be surprised to hear then. Is, um, my underdog is APIs, very sexy. Uh, we, we interconnect these, these various systems using APIs and using these sort of, in some cases, bespoke interfaces. Whereas I think, you know, and I, I'm hearing noise about, you know, the development of industry, you know, transit industry APIs that will help us interconnect disparate devices and systems that are built for transit without having to sort of bespoke um, as, as we do today. We can take lessons from the payment industry as one where you can take an off-the-shelf payment reader and connect it to an acquirer. Um, and it, and it I, I say it just works. Of course, you've got to do testing. But, you know, the basic rules exist and every payment terminal follows those basic rules. So let's make every transit validator follow the same rules so that you can give transit agencies the choice that yesterday they have 200 you know readers from vendor a and tomorrow they can swap them out for you know readers from vendor b uh, without a, a massive headache or integration project reduce costs and bring new th- new things new features to market much quicker Ben's who's who of transit. Simon, it's been great to speak to you today, but uh, one of the things we do bring up is to have you recommend another voice that we should uh, we should also hear from that you think's been doing great things in the uh, transit industry. Someone who's doing some really interesting things in quite a tough environment is someone who works for Ricardo Bogota. And they manage the ticketing system in, in Bogota, the capital of Colombia. They've been a client of ours, which is which is how I've come to know them. The rules for electronic transactions in Colombia are are very different to what we're used to in the UK, in the US, where a lot of time there's a tax on electronic transactions. So that discourages people from 
transacting in you know in electronic currencies. So how then do you operate a fair collection system in, in that environment? So I think it'd be really interesting to hear Javier Cancela from Ricardo Bogota and hear what he has to say about delivering fair collection systems in South America and in Bogota specifically. Transit Voices with Ben Whitaker. Fantastic to speak with Simon today. And wonderful that we're in such agreement on a number of topics, including keeping cryptocurrencies out of public transit for now, especially all that energy wasting is something that isn't aligned with what we're trying to achieve with public transit. Fantastic that contactless EMV has come through the work at TFL to save them so much money in dematerializing and avoiding all the sales activity and mechanisms required for the Oyster card. But I think the bigger savings that Simon's research indicated from shared software platforms are the enduring benefit that we can get from new tech. But even more interesting in savings is not just adding new technology and layers, but removing some of the old. So our next conversation is going to be with Brandon from Greater Dayton RTA, who have now removed onboard cash from the buses and then get to remove their fare boxes and vaulting and all of the cash operations that go with it. Real enduring savings. Tune in next time to find out more. You've listened to Transit Voices, the podcast by transit nerds for transit nerds. Don't forget to subscribe to Transit Voices to keep up with the latest editions on your favorite podcast platform. <laughs>